Hey guys, welcome to the shit show of my 20s. I'm so excited that you guys are here. My name's Sophia. I started this podcast in the beginning of April and I got furloughed at the end of March. And quite honestly, it was so hard for me to comprehend and deal with that. I was like, I have two choices right now. I can start the podcast that I've always wanted to start or I can let this really deter me and start emotional eating and just sit on the couch and do nothing. And I decided to go with the first choice. And I'm so glad that I did because I've got to meet so many inspiring people from all over the world. And I hope that you guys see yourselves in some of these stories because I've just been having so much fun. This has been lighting me up so much. And I'm really glad that I put myself out there and decided to start it. You know, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to start it. And I'm so glad that I just did that. And I know as an introvert, it's been pretty hard to like put myself out there, talk in front of a camera, talk to all these people I don't know. But I feel like this has been such a growing experience for me. And I feel like I need to share that with you guys because maybe there's something in your life that excites you but kind of scares you at the same time. And maybe it's time to step into that. Today's guest is Becky. I loved hearing about her journey. We talked about what it was like to go into a hundred job interviews within four months, how she's been able to overcome adversity, tips for being more inclusive, and so much more. So let's get started. Thank you so much, Becky, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to know about your story, any career changes you've had. How'd you get to the place you're at right now? That's a great question. Uh, since people can't see me uh, through through the podcast, I just wanted to let people know that I do identify as someone with a disability. I have dwarfism. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts to two average height parents, and they did not know what that meant when I was born when they were told that their child has dwarfism. They worked really hard to advocate on my behalf in order to make sure that I could still live an independent, fulfilling life. And I was able to participate in society alongside the people in my community. My average height friends, I participated in sports with. I did soccer, sailing, skiing, swimming. I also had a friend who was in my class from preschool to seventh grade because she was able to support me in case there were any people who would want to make fun of me because of my size and physical difference. And then when I got to middle school and elementary school, I took school very seriously. Uh, But one thing that comes with having dwarfism are some potential medical complications. And when I was 15, I lost my ability to walk and had to miss 29 days of school. And I had a major back surgery. I had seven pieces of my lower vertebrae removed. And my biggest fear during that whole time wasn't the fact that I had have surgery. It was the fact that I was going to fall behind in school. I was in all honors classes, and then I was going to have to take a step down to college preparatory classes. And I thought that was going to take me off track to being able to graduate and then go to college. But fortunately, I worked really hard and was able to get back on track. And I was in honors and AP classes by my senior year in high school. 
and I applied to nine colleges. The college I chose to go to was Providence College in Rhode Island because they had a little person who was in the cafeteria when I was going on tour there. And I thought, okay, at least this environment had seen one other little person. And the reason why that's such a big deal is that there are only 30,000 little people in the United States. So most people don't see us unless they may see us in the media, on TV or in movies. And around that time, I started to get intrigued by the fact that the media does have a strong influence on how society perceives people like me, since that may be their only perception. And I chose marketing as a major as a major because Providence didn't have a huge film or theater program. They were starting to build it at that point, but I did take some classes in video production, but I wanted to figure out how do we change what we see in the media to have more positive portrayals. So I did some standard advertising, marketing type internships through college. And then towards the end of my college career, I started with an ad agency called Allied Integrated Marketing. And they are the intermediary between the movie companies and the general public. And I would go to advanced screenings and write down notes on how people would react to different movies. And if they reacted negatively to anything, I could send those notes to the studios to make updates before the wide release. And that's when I really got a grasp on, okay, this industry has a huge influence. And then I worked at the NBC affiliate in Providence during my senior year when I wasn't at, in classes. And then I was asked to be a stand-in in the movie Underdog that was filming in Providence during the summer after college. And unfortunately, it was a stand-in role for Peter Dinklage and a lot of people who may not know what a stand-in role is. It's you're there standing in while the production is setting up the lighting and then the actor who's actually going to act in the film will come when it's time to start acting versus waiting around till the set is ready for them. And this is very helpful, especially with a lot of child actors, because child actors may need to go through schooling while filming is taking place. And that's a good time for that to happen. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take that opportunity because it conflicted with my last two weeks of college. And it was important for me to graduate after going that far. So I asked if I could help with the casting process just in general behind the scenes. And I really got a sense of what that part of the industry was like. I spent the summer trying to fill th roles for 300 extras a day if there were crowd scenes for the film. And then at the end of the summer, I had a friend who I met through this organization, Little People of America. It was an organization who's a support system for people with dwarfism like myself. And I first got involved when I was in college. I didn't think that I needed to get involved earlier in my life, but I started to gain a lot of friends and they happened to live out on the west coast in LA and my friend at the time had asked me why don't you come move to LA and work for my talent manager he was an actor and I thought okay great and my parents always told me you need to have a job and a place to live and then we'll support your move across the country from Boston I set those things up got across the country and the day I got there the job fell through and then I also found a note after my parents dropped me off from my dad saying, I always wanted you to be independent, but I never thought you'd be this independent. <laughs> and it really <laughs> exceeded the goal that they had for me, having an independent life. And that motivated me to just push harder, even though I did have the pressure of, okay, you don't have a job now. Are you going to move back to Boston? Like, what's happening? 
and I ended up sending out a thousand resumes and I went on a hundred interviews and most times when I would walk in the room I knew based on the way that people would look at me that I wasn't getting the job they weren't asking the questions that would get rid of the elephant in the room they were just fearful of my presence and I went on a hundred interviews over the course of four months and then I decided that I would go through some temporary placement agencies that are the intermediary between the employer and the candidate who's looking. And I would interview with them and then hope that they would pitch me to different jobs. I ended up doing a month at the Hallmark Channel in Studio City, and then I did my first transition into a job that would eventually become permanent. A few weeks later, right after the new year in 2007, I started at Creative Artists Agency in the Hispanic Marketing Department. Unfortunately, I took French in college and high school, so I needed to figure out how to learn that really fast. But because I was working for someone who had a background in diversity in general, she was really supportive and making sure I have the support I need to succeed there. And there was someone who was able to assist me, maybe take those calls with the Spanish speaking clients and I could do a lot of the administrative work and once a position became available in the entertainment marketing department, I was able to transition and I was there for another year and a half. And then I worked in the comedy touring department where we would book com comedians all around the country and the world. Sometimes I would go up to four shows a night and it felt very similar to that first job in advertising where I would write notes and then report back on how I thought people were doing and some of them could be potential clients in the future. And then towards the end of my time at Creative Artists Agency, I was asked, what am I passionate about? I felt up until that point in my career, I couldn't really express myself when it came to sharing my passion because I wanted to just be known for doing well at my job and then waiting till I got that rapport to have those type of conversations. And I said exactly what I had said previously in college was that I'm passionate about changing what we see in the media because it affects how people like me are perceived in society. And the agency gave me a space to put together a panel conversation with actors with, in, with disabilities and then also people who work behind the scenes with disabilities. And they had a great conversation where 160 people came. And from that, I was able to build a social media platform called Disability in Media. I have a Twitter page and Facebook that kind of feed into each other. And I just share positive stories of people with disabilities doing amazing things. Not really meant to be anything that would be political or religious because I feel like some of those messages can get in the way of getting the point across of we just want to be included. But really just stories of things that may seem impossible to one, impossible to one person but aren't really that impossible if you see more people doing it. That people always say, if you can see it, you can be it. So people want to see people like them before they go and give something a chance. But I always try to tell people, you should still go for it. So after Creative Artists Agency, I worked at CBS Television Studios for a year, kind of back in that casting realm. And I did that for about a year and realized after that time that casting directors struggle to find the people they want for roles unless they're specific to what's written on script or they worry about being too creative. So they think of a doctor, well, maybe it's just a, doc, a white doctor 
and that's all they're thinking that can play the part. So it was a struggle to advocate for actors with disabilities while I was there. And after that year, I decided to move back home to Boston. It was a very hard decision, but I did it because I needed a fresh start and I wanted to be around my family and get the support I needed to continue my mission in a different way. And that's when my sister asked me if I could come meet her class, just kind of just hang out. And then I thought, why don't I come and try to share my story? I worried a little bit about not being at a certain level of success in my career. And I was thinking, why would people want to listen to me? But then I soon after learned that people did want to listen to me. And I had that fortunate ability to be able to share my story up until that point at around 27 years old when I started doing speaking. And then I started reaching out to different rotary clubs and I got connected with some school programs. A lot of programs have education around different disabilities. So they may do first grade learns about hearing disabilities, second grade learns about vision disabilities, third and fourth may learn about physical disabilities. So being able to share my story and relate to whatever the curriculum may be. And then I attended a meeting with a lot of parents of little people and they said that their kids were struggling in school. So I decided to go into the schools, talk to the administrators and then share my story with the school. So hopefully that child doesn't get picked on once they enter a new school environment. And then I did have the opportunity to go to Kenya to help launch a little people organization there. And soon after that, I ended up moving to New York City from Boston to work for the Actors Union in diversity, advocating for all parts of diversity. I was still able to continue speaking while I was there, but I was learning about how each aspect of diversity is affected when it comes to getting equal representation in the media. I did that for about three and a half years and then got to the point where I am now helping business get better at disability inclusion. I learned that business is a little bit more passionate, the corporate world's a little bit more passionate in making change. There are more people that are willing to identify as having a disability or a relationship to disability. And that has led to eagerness to do better versus entertainment. They're still a little bit worried about box office numbers. And if they hire someone with a disability that's not well known, they're not gonna get the viewership they may want. I think they're learning slowly that that may not be the case because authenticity is really important, but they still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And can we go back to when you went on the hundred interviews and what that process yes. was like and what helped you through that? I think what helped me through it was my dad always says to me, I can have one bad day, but the next day I better get back up and be positive. And there were definitely days where I didn't want to be positive, but I treated it like a job. So there really was maybe one day that I took off from applying or interviewing over the course of those four or five months. And I just kept pushing and kept going and thinking, okay, if these people don't want me, it's not going to be a good environment to be in anyways. But one of the things I do crave the most, and I always tell people is, if I were to go back in that time, I wish I had the courage to ask, tell me how I can do better. I know that this isn't going to work out, but tell me how I can do better. And then learning from that could help me do better even that next day versus waiting four months to then go through that temporary placement agency that could advocate on my behalf. 
uh, I wish it didn't have to get to that point that I had to have someone help me and that I could just, my resume, enough internship experiences. It wasn't like I was applying to C, CEO level jobs. It was still very entry level type jobs, but I think it would have been nice to get the feedback and proper communication rather than the fear that I saw in the eyes of some of the interviewers. And what advice would you give to employers and businesses to be more inclusive? I would say put it out there that you're willing to make an accommodation for someone when they come to the interview. Because if I, if I even saw that language, I think it would have made it more comfortable for me to say, you know what, I may not be able to reach the elevator button when I get to the building, or I may need a stool if you're sitting at a high table. There aren't often times where I ask for the proper accommodations because I don't want to feel like it's a burden. And this was before LinkedIn and other social media where you could really tell that. And so I didn't feel like I needed to put it on my resume that I was a little person. So I would say give people the space to share what accommodations they need in order to be successful. And in most cases, you're going to be able to accommodate. It's not going to be like this drastic thing that makes everyone feel uncomfortable. Most accommodations are less than $500, even once someone does accept the job and has the, those accommodations for every day at the workplace. And what have you noticed by being able to tap into a community of like-minded people? How has that helped you for support? I think I've learned that there are people like me who may look like me, just similar diagnosis, achondroplastic dwarfism or any type of dwarfism. And we may have different lived experiences or different upbringings and that could make us drastically different people. So I think I learned there are definitely people who I connect with really well, but I'm not gonna connect well with everyone or have to agree with everyone and their ways of life. But I think what's powerful is knowing that you're not alone in these communities, that we go out on the street, people remind us that we're different and we get to have each other's support when it comes to like, has this ever happened to you? Or like ways to talk things out and if you have a friend who does not have the same condition as you what would you suggest to them so they can really help support you what would you like to see from them I always tell people ask questions and don't make assumptions and it starts with even like in the grocery store offer say say something like is there anything I can help you with if you're in the aisle as someone with someone who you think may be struggling but don't go and try to reach it and get it for them if they don't want you to do that yet. Kind of start that dialogue. You could even start the dialogue of how are you today? And then it could lead to, you seem like a friendly person. Do you mind helping me with this? Just kind of putting it out there that you're there to help if someone needs it. I think that's what I appreciate whenever I go into any type of venue and someone who is a good host will say, just let me know while you're here. Is there anything I can assist you with? knowing that it's clear that I'm not going to be able to reach everything, but there may be scenarios where I don't need to reach anything, just depending on what type of event it may be. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people ask the question of like talking to someone like me when we're at an event and they ask, should I bend down? And I tell people it really would come to asking the person, what do you prefer? 
but I think it would be okay if there are chairs nearby, but I don't think anyone wants to be so far away from the event that's happening to make it really obvious that it's a different social situation. And what was it like um, speaking in public for the first time? Were you nervous before it? What was your experience like? And what did you talk about? What stories did you share? I started working on a speech, writing it down, just kind of going through it. I, I would say it really depends on the level that I'm speaking to, whether it's a school level or an older group. And I think it's hard to try to switch the messaging to make sure it makes sense to everyone. But I think doing the younger groups was easier to start with, just kind of going through a breakdown. A lot of times I tell my story in chronological order just because that's kind of how I have it memorized. It is a little challenging. I, I would say I get more nervous when I have a written script because I'm worried that I'm going to miss something. And I, I did deliver a TEDx talk in 2014 and that I had a whole script written out and because they do have a lot of criteria and I thought I'm going to miss something. And I did have to shorten it because I didn't want it to come across that I was too nervous and it was really that I just forgot what else was on script and I wasn't able to read a script in that scenario. So I, I think what makes me less nervous is when I just speak from the heart and try to add different pieces in. I tr still try to get to know the audience and what part of my story may be more attractive to them than other parts of the story. But early on, I did get involved in Toastmasters. Every, I always thought, when I first heard of it, like, what's that? What does that have to do with speaking? But they have chapters all over the country and the world. And it really helped me structure the way that I deliver my speeches. So I got to, I think, like the certified Toastmaster level where I had to deliver 10 speeches with all different criteria and lengths. And you have to make sure that you avoid the ums and ahs and any awkward pauses. And you get graded and critiqued on it. And that was something that I also really enjoy. And I think I crave more of that even from a speaking perspective. Getting the feedback I need in order to get better is really important. And I think that's the community that Toastmasters allows for and helped me gain that confidence. And then while I was interviewing in Los Angeles, I did take an improv class and I had no desire to be an actor, but it definitely helps with even public speaking skills and how I present myself. And I think that helped as well. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to start public speaking? I would say do it, <laughs> start it. They have a lot of books that are great resources, but I think it, everyone has a different story. So start writing out if I were to start over again, I would probably go with bullet points rather than trying to come up with a whole script and really figure out how to dissect those bullet points. One thing that I'm working on now is just trying to come up with specific topics that I can speak to where it isn't necessarily my story in chronological order. So if they have a topic that they feel like they're a subject matter expert in, that may be a place to start. And then you could kind of integrate parts of your story into that. But I don't think, I think even when I was starting, I thought, oh, I had to reach a certain level of success in my career in order to do it. And I don't think that's the case. So if anyone wants to start speaking, they should just start doing it now. And would you actually rehearse the speeches in front of other people before you did them on stage? Sometimes. 
So I needed to rehearse when I did a TED talk for the Massachusetts Teachers Association. I did an ed talk, which was like a TED talk on education. And there are a few other scenarios, but I think it's more of I've got, gone over outlines with the people and then they trust me to go for it. <laughs> but I always tell people, especially when I was starting out, it was very hard to get that first paid speech. So if you're not going to get paid, try to find something else that you can get out of it. So videos, I feel, are really powerful, trying to get videos of your speeches so you can learn how to get better by watching them, but also have material in order to pitch that next speech. And why is story so important? I think story shows humanity. Like we all have a lot more in common. What's great is when I go to an elementary school and I talk to the kids about participating in soccer growing up, they're all like, I play soccer. And they tell me their whole story about their team. And it starts to show that we have more similarities than differences. And I think people may assume, oh, this person's just speaking because of this, that, or the other thing, but they'll actually get something out of it. There have been times, especially middle schools, where the kids are laughing in the auditorium, and by the end, they're quiet because they learn something, even if there's just one thing they can take away and have that be a better experience for the next person they may see who looks like me. What's your favorite part of your business? I would say the storytelling, uh, having a physical difference allows me to show it that like there isn't anything I can hide. And I really appreciate when there are people with invisible differences who start sharing their story with me. Like even when I was at the talent agency, I started to get to know people who would start sharing their stories with me. I was a little frustrated that they weren't comfortable sharing it with others because the more stories out there about disability, the more awareness and exposure and less fear will exist. But I think I, I was even putting together a panel of discussion and I was moderating and I mentioned something about invisible disability and then someone asked a question and then another person at the end said, who, where's that person who asked the question? Because they felt like they could relate to that person and wanted to find them to be able to connect. And I think that's another part of what I love to do is connecting people who should be connected and networking with people and making sure that everyone has the tools and support they need to do what they're passionate about. What is invisible disability? So invisible is anything you can't see. 75% of disabilities are invisible. So it may be cancer, it may be diabetes, it may be mental illness, it may be anxiety. A lot of things that you would not see MS, some things that may quote unquote act up at some point, but you can't see on an everyday basis. And it's more challenging for people with invisible disabilities to get the support they need because they're afraid to say that they have a difference because they've seen the way that people with physical disabilities are viewed and they don't wanna be viewed in the same light. And what is something that most people don't know about you? <sighs> That's a good question. I don't know. I try not to hide much. I think it would probably just be 
that I'm not very fearful when it comes to just like going out and seeing the world and the world has tried to be fearful on my behalf, if that makes sense. So my parents obviously supported me moving across the country to Los Angeles. And when I moved, the whole neighborhood and everyone asked, like, how could you let her do that? And they were like, why wouldn't we let her do that? So I think it's just them not knowing that I'm okay with things and it not being something that's just my parents pushing me to do it. And what's like a lot of these things in my life I've initiated on my own and (laughs) they've had nothing to do with it, but have supported it. And what's the biggest lesson you've learned from them? Stand up for yourself if something doesn't seem right. When I was first born, so after they left the hospital, they went to a genetic counselor. And when they got to the hospital where the genetic counselor worked, they got to the receptionist's office and they saw a sign that said birth defects. And then they were told by the receptionist to follow the sign that says birth defects, go up the elevator to the floor that says birth defects, and then down another hallway that says birth defects. Then you'll meet with the geneticist. And they felt very uneasy when they saw that sign. And they were able to convince the hospital to change the sign to genetics because that's exactly what it was. And they don't want other parents to have to go there and see a sign like that. So I think it's speaking up if something doesn't seem right, but doing it in a strategic way where you're not causing crazy conflict. Because we want to get to that point where people with disabilities are at an even level versus, oh, we've been left behind for so long let's go a hundred steps higher because of all that we've been deprived of. So I've always been very cautious at how I address the needs that I have, but knowing that it can help a lot more people than just me. And who inspires you? My dad. Uh, He grew up in a tough household where he was told he wasn't going to amount to anything and wanted to make sure that he did not give us that life when we were growing up and my sister and I and he did everything he could to be the best parent he could alongside my mom and I think just having his support and also just the fact that I have moved around a lot in my adult life but it's not necessarily a bad thing because they support whatever I'm doing and we still have a strong relationship regardless of where we are geographically. What is something that you're obsessed with right now? It could be anything. (laughs) Podcasts. (laughs) I think I'm just obsessed with trying to shift things because um, if I shift things, I need to continue to keep the messaging out. And it's clear that right now during COVID, it's hard to physically go and do things so I am trying to figure out how to continue to spread my message through a virtual platform so I can continue the momentum and make it known that anything still is possible during these times. Have you been doing like zoom talks for schools or? I have not yet because I think I've kind of just started getting into it, figuring out how to make the shift. But 
anticipating for the fall, I think I will be doing some and that would be awesome to be able to continue to book them with this new landscape. And what were your 20s like? Sorry, my headphone fell okay. out. <laughs> what were your 20s like? Well, I was in LA. <laughs> it, they were busy. I, I would say spent a lot of nights just staying up really late trying to enjoy as much as I could about living there. Sometimes probably enjoyed it too much. <laughs> but I think I learned a lot. I had a roommate who he was my roommate after I moved from the first place that I lived in. So it was about two years in, in LA and he was a foot shorter than I am. And he was a great support system. He came out of the closet while we were roommates and I was there to support him during that process, just making sure he didn't feel less than, even though he felt like it was a struggle to do that. And then he was also diagnosed with ALS. And so <laughs> I was supporting him during that journey too, until I ended up moving back to LA, but back to Boston. But I would say that after taking so long to get my first permanent job, I was working nine to seven, sometimes longer. So pretty much every weekday, I was extremely consumed and also trying to network as much as possible to figure out how I could move up within the industry. So a lot of it feels like it just flew by and there were times where I would meet up with people and then never see them again because it was a little bit of what can you do for me or how can you help me break into my career. And what I ended up doing is put, putting together some resources that I use to find the jobs that I interviewed for and then transitioned into and would just send that out as an email because I didn't want... <laughs> to try to advocate on behalf of people I didn't know much about. And I also didn't have that support while I was looking. So I think I was just kind of balancing, like working as hard as I could and then trying to be a resource to people. And I think it just, it flew by. <laughs> 27 was around the time where I moved back to Boston. And that was tough too, because I felt like I was giving up on a different type of lifestyle that I really enjoyed, but it just didn't end up sustaining. And what advice would you give your 20 year old self? I would probably say slow down, <laughs> do the best you can and pick and choose. I think what I learned even when it came to the networking, pick and choose what may make sense. Maybe try to vet people now, especially with the use of video calls that we've all been a part of. I think you could try to schedule a meeting with someone that way before actually spending a night getting to know them and learning that you really aren't able to help each other. So I would cut down on a lot of those. I think I just tried to take every opportunity I could. And I love meeting people, but it wasn't always the best use of time. Are there any questions that you wish I would have asked you? I think the biggest piece is just we got to keep pushing even though we're going through some tough times and understand that you're and nobody's alone right now because we're all going through this together it's an experience that we've never experienced before 
So maybe there's a lot of great things that can come out of it and even more similarities we can find with each other. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Where can people connect with you? They can go to my website, beckymotivates.com, and then they could find links to all my social media that way. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.